Hey everybody, welcome to Park Hill Church. Uh, as David said, my name is Evan, my wife Sandy and I have the joy of leading this church. We are continuing through the book of Revelation. So if you need a Bible, you're gonna, you will need one. We're covering a lot of ground very quickly today. So raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to pass one out to you. Raise your hand high. Um, so open them, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11. <clears throat> Rebecca's going to come up and read it in a moment. Maybe you're thinking, wait a minute, chapter 11. Didn't we just finish like chapter 4 and 5 last week? Yes. Like I said, we're covering a lot of ground quickly. Why? Because we want to keep the big picture. With a book like Revelation, it's, uh, you know, we want to see the whole forest, not just a few trees every week. Right? There's, it's very tempting. There's so many moving parts. It's super easy to focus in on a couple trees and wonder why these little trees are there. Um, and forget about the forest and lose the plot. Plus, we could be in Revelation till Easter and nobody wants that. So uh, here's the plan for today. Read, read Revelation 11. That's step one. And it's wild. You're going to be like, what's going on here? Uh, but stick it out. It turns out to be all about grace. And, and then step two. We're, after, after Rebecca reads it, we're going to recap where we've been, and then step three, sum up chapters six through ten. We're going to sum up six through ten in like 12 minutes, and then we'll be ready to walk through chapter 11 and really keep the big picture in view. We're taking in all of Revelation today. So, there we go. Without any further delay, welcome Rebecca Mayato, and read, read along with her Revelation 11, verses 1 through 18. Revelation 11, 1 through 18. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has, given, it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where all their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the, bread, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And when they went up, to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At the very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has, come, has become, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come, 
The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, thanks be to God. So good. Let's acknowledge the presence of God here. Holy Spirit, would you come now? Reveal to us the righteous judgment, the wisdom, and the grace of our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you've given us this window into reality as you see it. Help us to see it like you see it. Help us to see what you want us to see, Christ, clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Revelation 11, how was that for you? Someone's whistling. Um, plagues and prophets, mysterious numbers, feels cryptic, and there's this beast. So if Revelation is one of the most confusing books in the Bible for people, Revelation 11 is often the most confusing chapter of the most confusing book in the Bible for people. Uh, but after today, I think you're going to find out when we read it, as it's intended to be read, when we read it in context, Revelation 11 is one of the most powerful statements about God's grace and power in the whole Bible. So before we get there, here we are, step two. Let's recap where we've been. <clears throat> so a helpful way to think of the book of Revelation is as a drama, as we've said, with multiple acts and scene changes and characters who change costumes. Jesus is putting on a drama for John, a vision. And this is actually how all apoc apocalyptic literature is intended to be read. It's, it's a drama that's, that has eternal meaning behind its imagery. So the recap is this. Act one is chapters one through three. Act one of the drama. Uh, chapter one, we see Jesus straight on in all his glory. Remember the hero shot. We see the hero shot at the beginning of the play. And it's Jesus with eyes of fire, feet like brass, and voice like running water, roaring water. And then at the end of act one, Jesus gives seven messages, because he's the true emperor, who gives true messages to his true citizens. This is Jesus speaking to his church. And then, and then last Sunday, we started Act 2. Act 2 begins with chapters 4 and 5 with the word open. And then I saw heaven open. And through the door of heaven, John sees a throne at the beginning of Act 2. And on the throne is someone sitting on it who will not fall off. This is the Ancient of Days, the Creator. And John sees a scroll in his right hand sealed with seven seals. Remember that. That's very important. There's seven seals on this thing, and this scroll is all of history. Who is worthy to know all of history and to fix all of history and to solve every injustice and to wrap up every loose end and to wipe away every stray tear? Who can do it? And, and one of the elders says, look, the lion of Judah can do it. And John looks and he sees not a slaughtering lion, but a slaughtered lamb. And because the slaughtered lamb was slaughtered for the world, that gave him the power of the cosmos. From, from the Ancient of Days throne, he has the power to heal the world because he was wounded by the world. And, so, and so, so last week, we discovered what this all means for us. The lion has overcome by becoming a lamb. Jesus Christ is worthy to take history and open it because he gave himself in sacrificial love for all of history. Now the Lamb's people, that's you, you're the Lamb's people. We overcome injustice and sin and Satan the same way the Lamb did by giving ourselves sacrificially. We're the Lamb's people doing Lamb stuff. And so this is how we reign with the Lamb. This is why we worship the Lamb with creation, saying, worthy is the Lamb. And that's why we worshiped yesterday. We had an extended time of worship. It was beautiful. I don't know about you, but if you were here last week, I sent something break open in our church in a beautiful way, and I pray God continues to deepen our worship. So that's our recap. Now, part three here, we're, we're blazing through. Uh, we, we get the rest of Act 2 of Revelation through chapter 6 and 11. That's why Rebecca read chapter 11. It's like the climax of Act 2. It's the, it's the big finale of Act 2. It's really important to know. So if Act 2 opens up, the slaughtered lamb can take the scroll. The slaughtered lamb can fix history. What happens next? Here's a quick, quick summary. Think seals and trumpets. Seals and trumpets. Can you say that with me? Seals 
and trumpets. There's seven of each. And you'll be thankful that we're blazing through this because it's very detailed. So we're going to go through it in 10 minutes. Here it is. Revelation 6.1 through 8.1, John watches the Lamb open all seven seals of the scroll one by one. In each seal, there is pain and trouble, and there's also prayer. So when the Lamb breaks the seventh seal, heaven goes silent. Why? Because the breaking of the seven seals, it shows us one of the greatest secrets of history that we now know, which is heaven responds to prayer, you guys. History moves at the impulse of prayer. I love what Gerald Sitzer says. I love how he says it. Through prayer, we are junior partners with God in shaping the future. Prayer is powerful. The seven seals show us this. And, and, and after, after uh, Jesus the Lamb breaks the seventh seal, the scroll of history is now his. John sees seven angels step forward with seven trumpets. So you see seven seals and then seven trumpets. <clears throat> and then John watches the angels blow the trumpets one by one. And, and an, I promise we're getting somewhere that's very meaningful for your life. <laughs> Doesn't feel like it right now. But, but in the drama, the seven trumpets, they come to us just like the seals. Seals one, two, three, four really fast. And then seals five and six slow down. And then there's this dramatic pause that lasts over a chapter. And then boom, seven. The trumpets do the same thing. One, two, three, four really fast. Five and six slow. Dramatic pause. And so today, our chapter 11 shows up during that dramatic pause before the final trumpet blast. So why this format? What is John telling us here? Rather, what is Jesus telling us through John? Because remember, Jesus is putting on this play. Um, so, so remember from the Revelation intro teaching, the question to ask when reading the apocalypse of Jesus, which is the name for Revelation, the question is not, what happens next in 2022? What's the next thing we're going to see in the news from Revelation? That's not the question. The question is not, what happens next? The question is, what does John see next? Because what John sees next may not happen next. So when we read the seven seals, seven trumpets, and later on seven bowls, not today, but in chapter 16, we, we are not reading events happening in sequence. Do you hear this? It's very important. We read the seven seals and seven trumpets. We are not reading events in a timeline. And here's where I want to say... Now, I want to say this over this whole talk, because if there's any talk that's going to, if there's any sermon in this series that's going to get people disagreeing about the details, it'll be this one. Um, because I want to say this, good and godly people disagree on some of this stuff, the finer points. But our team, I'm going to give you what our team thinks is the best understanding that leads to, like, max discipleship from this book. So, so here it is, slide eight. There's the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bulls. These are referring to general dynamics of history, not specific events in sequence. In other words, it's not, well, history has to first go through the seals and then the trumpets. It's not like there's 21 events that have to happen, understand? Really important to see that, I think. Uh, I know there's disagreement on that, but I, like, disagree with that disagreement. <laughs> so, so it's really important that these aren't, like, events we're all waiting for in a row. So John, or rather Jesus through John, you have that next slide, is going around the same historical dynamics three times. He's giving us three different angles on the same realities, three different perspectives on the same problems and pains of the world. So one helpful way to think about this from Daryl Johnson, he says this, uh, he's a scholar in Canada. The seven seals is history from the perspective of the church being persecuted. The seven trumpets is the perspective of the world experiencing God's actions as judgment. And the seven bowls later on are from the perspective of heaven working out justice when nobody repents. So that's one helpful way to think of this. But here's the key thing I want to clarify. While some of these passages referring to specific, while some see, let me, let me rephrase this, while some see these passages referring to specific events in a seven-year tribulation, 
We, along with the majority of Bible scholars and a lot of church history, we don't see that. We see the passages speaking to all of time between the first and second coming of Jesus. These problems, these pains, you guys, our life after Jesus came the first time and we're waiting for him to come again, our lives in the church, you guys, we're suffering altogether. Some a lot more than us, most a lot more than modern Americans. And this suffering and this pain and this persecution is all around in so many different ways. And so is prayer. So, so, so this is not a question of, you know, when does each trumpet happen? Because these passages, slide 11, they don't refer to specific events in sequence, but history in general. They're happening all the time. All through history. And they'll keep happening until Jesus comes back with his new heaven and new earth. And now there's one more thing before we look at chapter 11 and have more of a normal sermon, because right now I know it feels like a Bible college classroom, and sorry but not sorry, so, uh, <clears throat> so before we get to chapter 11, one more important thing. In both the seals and the trumpets, I want to look at that interlude, that dramatic pause, because that's where we find the money. That's where we find the magic for us. So do you have that slide? There they are. There's the seals, and there's that family moment between six and seven on both sides. This is the, this is the mojo for us. Uh, that's where we get what we, what we came to church for. Uh, why? Because in each interlude here, there's a really important question that is answered that matters a whole lot for you and me. The big question over here in the seals is who can stand amidst all of the persecution? Here's the verse. They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can withstand it? It's desperate. The whole world is desperate. We long for healing. And, and who can stand through the seals? And then there's a pun, an intentional Bible. Did you know the Bible has puns in it? It says, who can stand through the seals? And the answer, those who the Lamb has sealed. It's right there in the Greek. Who has the Lamb sealed with his blood? Who can stand all of the suffering and pain and come out on top of history? The Lamb has sealed them. Who are they? John gives you another symbol for this group. And it's a number. And the number is the 144,000. <laughs> Those are the ones who survive. The 144,000. And you guys, I want to say that's clearly a symbol. It's a symbolic number. And, and Here's a helpful way of reading Revelation. All the numbers in Revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus, they're symbols. When you read the numbers in Revelation, think symbols, not stats. Symbols, not stats. That's helpful. So, so here's how the 144,000 works. Here's how it works. So 144,000 is, who are they? The ones who can stand. The ones who don't fall down forever. The ones who get back up by the power of the Spirit. So 144 is this powerful symbol for the whole family of God because remember the 24 elders, it represents the whole family of God, 12 plus 12, but now he's saying 12 times 12. Well, this is the whole family here. This is everyone in the family. And then timesing by 10 is a Jewish way of saying it's actually really big. No, no, wait. times 10 times 10 is really, really big. No, it's really, really, really big. This is, this is what John is doing here. And then he defines what he's doing in the next verse. I looked, and therefore before me was a great multitude. No one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. You guys, sealed by Jesus from every race, from every language, and every culture, the Lamb has sealed with his protection from persecution and promise to raise you from the dead when you're suffering, and promise to limit your suffering. This is the Lamb's power over you. Who can withstand? Who has the power to survive under pain? Those who the Lamb has sealed 
by his blood. That's you and me, you guys. That's everyone who's chosen to trust Jesus. That's everyone who goes into the waters of baptism. Everyone. We have someone ready. Josh is ready to be baptized today. Awesome, Josh. So pumped about you. And, and anyone else to be sealed by the Lamb and to stand on the last day. This is who John is talking about here. And you guys, the lamb has a lot, 10 times, 10 times 10. <laughs> they didn't have like modern math back then. He's just saying a lot, you know? Let's add a, as many zeros as we can on this scroll. That's what he's saying. Over 2.5 billion in the world today and counting mostly in the majority world, you guys, growing rapidly in the places it costs the most to follow Jesus. But even here in the U.S. where it feels like Christianity is shrinking, did you know statistically 40% of Americans raised in non-religious homes become religious, typically Christians, as adults, while only 20% of people raised Protestant switch to non-religious? Did you know this? You know what that means? I can give you the source for these stats, by the way, if you email in. This means your non-religious friends are twice as likely to raise kids who become Christians than you are to raise kids who become non-religious. You guys, this thing can't be stopped. Jesus has sealed us. All this to say, the Lamb's family is big and growing, like crazy, even when it doesn't seem like it. And so the seventh seal is saying, this is real. This family stands because we bear the seal of the Lamb. And then the seven trumpets come along and they have a question that they're answering. And the question of the trumpets is, okay, this family, what is this family supposed to be doing? Now we know who's standing, but now the standing family, what are we doing? And this question and this answer, it comes at the end of chapter 9. Here's the verse. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues and did not repent of the work of their hands, they did not stop worshiping demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, wood, idols that can't see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, magic, arts, sexual immorality, or their thefts. The trumpets have one goal, bring people to repentance. Repent. That's the goal. What does repent mean? We talk about it kind of a lot. And we acknowledge the word repent has some baggage in America. We think angry preaching and hypocrites who say repent but live abusively. But repent simply means turn around. Rethink your thinking. If God's kingdom is ultimately good and will last forever, then turn around from everything that's not part of his kingdom and embrace the good lamb as your savior. Turn around. So as some are turning around and others aren't, what are we doing? <clears throat> the answer is in the trumpet interlude. What we are doing is we are witnessing. Another word that has baggage in America, doesn't it? Witnessing going out and like persuading people in one night that you'll never meet again out on the street or something. Um, but think, think witness. Witness to the Lamb. Think standing in a courtroom. When you're called to the witness stand, you're testifying about someone else usually. Once in a while, it's the defendant called to the witness stand. But for the most part, you're speaking about someone. <clears throat> And so, and so that's what we do. We're speaking about someone. This is what we do. This is the whole point of the trumpets, you guys. Do you speak of Jesus? Do you speak to what Jesus has done in your life? This is what Revelation 11 is all about. And now we come to what Rebecca read. You see the flow. You guys, we just got five chapters in 10 minutes, okay? So, 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 so thank, thank me later, okay? <clears throat> now we're settling down. We're finding a stride. Revelation 11 is about two witnesses. The two witnesses, they're two individuals in the story. They represent, and here's what I'm going to say, 
they represent the church faithfully witnessing to the world. The two witnesses represent the church faithfully witnessing to the world. Here's Richard Bauckham on this, very well-respected Revelation scholar, one of the most respected guys alive today on this book, and he says this, the two individuals here must not be taken literally or even as allegory, as though the sequences of events in this story were supposed to correspond to a sequence of events in the church's history. No, the story is more like a parable, which Jesus loved those, by the way, which dramatizes the nature and the result of the church's witness. How do we know this, that the two witnesses represent the church? Maybe we come with different ideas of who these witnesses are. I grew up with different ideas. How do we know these two witnesses represent the church? Verse four, verse four. Here's verse four, I will appoint my two witnesses, they are the two Lampstands. Where have we seen lampstands in Revelation? Just let the Bible unpack itself for you. In chapter 1, yeah, in chapters 1 through 3, Jesus calls the church my lampstands. Now here in chapter 11, he calls the two witnesses the lampstands, representing the faithful church, witnessing to Jesus, telling the world what Jesus has done in their life. And why two? Why two witnesses? All through Scripture, what is, what is required for proper legal testimony in a court of law? A testimony of two or three, it says, witnesses. So two is enough. You guys, the church is enough. The church is trustworthy. Our testimony, our doctrine, what core orthodoxy has always said about who God is from beginning, the church can be trusted. The church is imperfect, immoral things happening all over, but the core, the testimony, the doctrine, the orthodoxy, it can be trusted. It's not going anywhere. Not going anywhere, you guys. The gospel we carry is trustworthy. This is you and me and the whole church all over the world bearing witness. Jesus has come to us and he says, who do you say that I am? And we say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that testimony stands. It's two. It's faithful. So watch what happens to these faithful witnesses. Watch, Revelation 11.1. 1. John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told go measure the temple and the altar with its worshipers. So for the first time in Revelation, Jesus asks John to do something. Up until now he's been observing, now he's invited to participate. We should feel this invitation. What is he invited to do? Measure the temple, right? He's measuring the temple. And this can't refer to a literal stone temple. Why? Because the temple wasn't there anymore at the time Revelation was written. It was destroyed. By the time Jesus gave John this revelation, the Jerusalem temple was gone for decades. So, so, so John knows the stone temple no longer exists. And I think John knew that it would never exist again, which is why John says at the end of Revelation, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No more temple. Because it turns out this whole new city God is building is the temple. It turns out, you guys, that this people, this house made of people, is now the living spot, the dwelling place for the Lamb. John's not measuring a literal building. He's being told to measure a people, you guys. The new temple of God is this people. We are the city. Many languages and cultures coming together all over the world to form this city Jesus is building. This is a major theme in the New Testament. Just put the verses on the screen. We're not gonna just read them word for word, but look at them. First Corinthians. You yourselves, God's temple. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know your bodies are the temple? 2 Corinthians 6, we are the temple. <laughs> I will live with them. Next slide. 1 Peter 2, you also, like living stones, you're, a, you're God's house. You're the temple. And then Ephesians 2, amazing. In Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to be a holy temple in the Lord. You guys, that's when he's talking about racism in the church, Jews and Gentiles at each other's throats, ethnic tension and hostility, it's like no, God is overcoming insurmountable hostility to create a new house to live in where ethnicity divided you, forgiveness and reparations are both being made possible at the same time. This is a temple, 
It's not a, not a brick-and-mortar temple in Jerusalem that he's pointing to here. It is this multicolored, multicultural, multilingual family. And why is he measuring the temple? Why is he measuring it? Because in Zechariah, the idea of measuring something is like, I'm going to protect it. In Zechariah 2, there's a guy asked to measure the, the city of Jerusalem because, quote, God will be a wall of fire to her. He'll be your hedge of protection and your glory in the middle of you. God's going to protect you on the outside and live with you on the inside. That's what it means God is measuring. His measurement is not this legal judging, I just want to make sure you're doing everything right. No, his measurement is like, I'm measuring a garment to wear. <laughs> like, I really want to live with you. And so keep reading, verse 2 and 3. It says, but exclude, verse, uh, Revelation 11, 2 and 3. But don't measure the outer court because it's been given to the Gentiles. They'll trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I'll appoint my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in really uncomfortable, like, rucksack, like really uncomfortable stuff. No fun to wear that, sackcloth stuff. So, so what's going on here? You guys, same time period here, 42 months, 1260 days. Remember, symbols, not stats. Remember that, symbols, not stats. What does this mean? It means the people of God, the city, will get pressurized by the outside world for a length of time. And verse 3, these same people of God, the witnesses, will prophesy back. So this is the church getting pressurized while prophesying at the same time for a length of time. How long? 42 months. What's this symbol? Remember, statistic. Not statistic, symbol. All numbers in Revelation are symbols. So just put that list of symbols up here, you guys. This is fantastic. I can't believe the Bible does this stuff. It's amazing. So, so it's all the same. 42 months, 12, 60 days. So the same amount of time, 30-day months. Three and a half years, half a seven number. All these numbers are all through the Bible. Don't memorize that. There's no quiz. The point is, the Bible talks about these a lot. We're getting, we're getting deep in Revelation. The Bible talks about these numbers a lot. They would do things to the ancient Jewish heart as they read them. Next slide. 42 months. It's the length of time it didn't rain when Elijah prayed. 42, number of generations in Matthew 1, 42. So, so this next slide is the point. Here's the point. So what? It seems this symbol stands for the whole time the people of God bear witness in the world under pressure from culture to compromise allegiance to Jesus. So here's the why and the how you exist. Why are you in church right now? Why are you the church right now? The reason is because God has witnesses in the world to speak of his son, calling people to turn around. How do we turn around? How do we do this? How do we do this job? How do we call people to turn around? What were they wearing? You guys, we call people to turn around by turning around ourselves. sackcloth, the clothing of repentance. So, so God's family lives in a constant state of repentance. This is who we are. This is what it means to be faithful. We don't just read the Bible and tell people what to do. That is not a faithful witness. A faithful witness is someone who first puts on the really uncomfortable sackcloth that just makes you itchy and shows you all the places where it's not comfortable and we realize, oh Lord, I am in repentance, I'm in a state of turning around. That is how we then serve the world. God's family is a family who lives in a constant state of repentance and you guys, that's the family that gets power. That's the family of power from God. Uh, look at verses 5 and 6. He's talking about the witnesses. He says, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from the mouths and devours their enemies. This is recalling the ancient story of Elijah when God protects him. You guys, you have God's protection and power. And Revelation 11:6 says, they have power to shut up the heavens so it won't rain during the time they prophesy. 
more of Elijah's power. And then they have power to turn waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. You guys, this is God empowering Moses against Pharaoh. If you're reading this and you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're like, this is incredible stuff. I am promised the same power that Moses and Elijah received if I'm faithful like them. This is what God is promising you. This is a message for you. This is not a message for some future church in some future age. This is for you. Do you see where this is going? You guys, God will give you power as you are faithful. And so the question is obvious, are you faithful? Are you wearing the sackcloth? Are you repentant? It actually is a very simple message. All these numbers and everything, I don't know why John did this. It was a genre at the time. Some say he was trying to get his subversive political message past Caesar's filter. And so he was doing all this Jewish code almost with the Bible. I don't know. But it's a simple delivery. The church that is wearing the clothing of repentance receives the power of God. And the idea is, as you are faithful, you will see God's hand. But it might not look the way you want or expect. Look what happens to the two witnesses. Verse 7, now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. You're like, Evan, that's not power. That's dying. That's bad. That's not power. I don't want that. Uh, you're, yeah, that's right. It's dying. But Evan, you said the two witnesses get God's power and even protection, but then a beast eats them. Um, yep, that's true. What's going on here? John's going to tell us more about the beast when we get to chapter 13. He's like giving us a little foreshadowing of this character without giving you his bio, which is what he does all through this book. So he mentions the beast here to let us know, you guys, it's a beast. It's a beast. It's not a man. The real enemies of God's witnesses are not just human. They're antichrist forces behind, yes, humans and governments and systems and ideologies. These are demonic powers that can harm. They absolutely can harm. And John is showing us what we already know from Paul. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the unseen. And this beast kills the witnesses. Why? Because the beast doesn't like the one they're witnessing about. As we're going to see next week when Tanika preaches on chapter 12, the beast does not like this lamb. And notice where the witnesses get killed. Look, look where they die. It says their bodies will lie in public in the great city. That's Bible code for a really bad city. Which is figuratively, I love this. They just tell us here's a, here's a figurative piece. That's so nice, so handy, isn't it? Which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified, which is, which is a clear reference to Jerusalem. So, so John is saying, who is figurative Sodom, Egypt, Jerusalem? What do these have in common? They all rejected God and his people and Jesus. So this is every Christ rejecting culture, you guys. The witnesses are getting killed in every Christ rejecting culture. Do you believe this? The, the witnesses of Jesus today are getting destroyed in every Christ rejecting culture. Here in America, we know all about that great city, or at least we hear about it, don't we? Don't get me wrong. Uh, there's a lot of great things about America, but at the same time, we're a mixed bag. That great city is here too, where independence replaces Christian community, or independence even replaces Christian freedom, where achievement replaces repentance where opp oppression and enslavement has literally masqueraded as Christian <laughs> throughout American history, where we pledge allegiance to a beast, whether in the form of a flag we place over the lamb or our own authentic desires we place over the lamb's desires. We know all about that great city. 
We know all about the great city. And Jesus tells us the beast kills God's witnesses in that great city, and the city people, the people who are allegiant to the city, they mock the witnesses' corpses. Welcome to Revelation. And it looks like the beast wins, but for how long? Look at verse 9 and 10. For three and a half years? He's been talking about years. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's days, you guys. For three and a half days, the beast thinks he wins, and the city thinks they win. What does that mean? Remember, symbols, not statistics. The point, the period of time when it seems like the beast is winning is very short. Because things are more than they seem. Things are more than they seem. Look at the next part. But after three and a half years, no, just days. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet. Terror struck those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, get up here. I want to be with you. Remember that? Get up to me. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies just gaped looking on. If that looks familiar to you, that's Ezekiel's prophecy of dead bones coming to life by God's breath. This is the promise for the faithful witnesses. And the question keeps coming to you, Park Hill Church, are you a faithful witness? Are you clothed in repentance? Because this is the promise for the faithful repentant. This kind of power. This kind of power. And, and so the point, you guys, is slide 35, I think. The point is that the global church of Jesus can't be destroyed. Christianity is literally designed to succeed through apparent failure, to grow by death and resurrection. You guys, it's, 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 almost, it's almost unfair to the enemy. <laughs> We're invincible. We're invincible. No wonder Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church and not even hell can stand. But who can stand? Faithful witnesses. The seals say so. Are you a faithful witness? Is your whole life clothed in repentance? Think China right now. Persecution. By the way, pray for Cardinal Zen. If you've been following his journey since May, he's been on trial for the dumbest stuff. It's totally a political persecution move on the part of China's government. Pray for Cardinal Zen. 90 years old senior leader in the Orthodox Catholic Church in China. And, and so in 1950, Chinese population was 0.7% Christian, 0.7. Uh, that's 4 million people in half a billion. Today, China is 5% Christian, 67 million. Experts say that by 2030, there'll be more Chinese Christians than American Christians. That's eight years from now. Think Iran. You guys, the fastest growing church in the world where it's illegal to convert from Islam. In the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the previous 13 centuries since Islam came to Iran. In the last 20 years. In 1979, there was an estimated 500 Christians that had Muslim backgrounds in Iran. 500 in all of Iran. Today, there are hundreds of thousands, some estimate over one million. That's my, basically my lifetime. I was born in 81. By the way, that's the fastest growing church. You know the second fastest growing church? Afghanistan, which is being reached mostly by Iranian missionaries right now. You guys, so, so three, th three and a half days. It's just days where it seems the enemy's winning. Just days. So when you see the U.S. and Western Europe, the church is shrinking in the West. Your gut response should, should be fear, like, oh my gosh, what do we do? No, the church is shrinking in the West. Your gut response is like, I'm so pumped for my kids and grandkids to see a resurrection. I, I'm, I am envious of my grandkids. It's just a matter of days, you guys. Just days. And finally, the end of Revelation 11 Look at what happens to that great city. This is where we discover grace. It seems intense, it seems violent, and it is. There's all kinds of intense things happening, but it's also drenched in grace. Look at verse 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and one-tenth of the city collapsed. How much of the city fell? 
a tenth. 7,000 people were killed. How many were killed? And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Do you see grace there? It's very easy to miss. Beautiful grace there. Like, what are you talking? How are you going to spin this one, Evan? (laughs) I don't have to spin it. It's right here. What's beautiful or gracious about one-tenth of a city collapsing or 7,000 people dying? What's beautiful? One-tenth, 7,000. Remember, stats are symbols. These are symbols. Symbols of what? I would argue grace. So don't get me wrong. One-tenth and 7,000, it does sound awful, and it is in itself. That's loss. But John is doing what Daryl Johnson calls gospel math here. And I think, I think it, John is doing gospel math. It's in the text. Look what he does. You're supposed to go back to Isaiah because he talks about one-tenth. Back in the Old Testament, Isaiah talks about only one-tenth of, of Israel, all of Israel, only one-tenth survives. Amos talked about a city of a thousand only having a hundred left. One-tenth is saved. Nine-tenths are destroyed. But you know what John is saying? He's flipping it. And he's saying, no, nine-tenths are saved. Only one-tenth is lost. Because this is intentional. This is what John is doing. Not one-tenth saved, 90% saved. Oh, Evan, what about the 7,000 who die? Yeah, yeah, 7,000 die. It's awful. But in 1 Kings 19, Elijah mourns only 7,000 in all of Israel are even living. And here in Revelation, only 7,000 in the whole culture die. And 63,000, if you go by the tenths, you guys, do you see this grace? John's turning everyone's expectations around. What do you think is going to happen in the end? What do you think is going to, how many people are going to be in hell? How many people are going to be in heaven? Oh my gosh, it can't be fair. God, I can't trust a God who would judge people who never had a chance or whatever. You guys, no, no, no. These symbols are saying something. At the end of history, when everything's said and done and the Lamb of God has his way, how many will be saved? Here's the official revelation answer. How many will be saved? Here's the official answer. Always more than you think. Always, everywhere, more than you think. You get a number in your head, it will be more than you think. Always, everywhere, more than you think. This is what these numbers are doing. You guys, it's reversing our own judgmental, our own projected hypocrisy that we put on people. And why is this reversal happening? Why why this great reversal? It's because of the witnesses. It's because of the faithful church. It's because of you. When you are repentant and you own your junk before the world that knows your junk, and you say, yes, I am wrong. I stand before my God, and I am healed and forgiven in his presence. Who's with me? You guys, that turns cultures. That turns cities. Richard Bauckham, he says, the faithful witness brings about the conversion of all, all but the 7,000. What does this mean? It means for us, you guys, persecution is not new, even though it might feel new to Americans. Through your joy-filled, faithful witness to Jesus through tough times, you are standing with a really big family that lasts forever. So here's the message. Don't be afraid faithfulness is worth it, just keep repenting. Don't fear, faithfulness is worth it, keep repenting. You're never done repenting. You're never done turning around from idols. And what are the big three? Always some form of abusing sex, money, or power. Always our idols end up being some abuse of sex or money or power from biblical times to modern. Last summer, I was part of a panel discussion on parenting, and this question came through, and I could tell it was covered in fear. And the question's like, 
As parents, what kind of persecution should we expect to face in the future? And, and you know, I, I responded just off the cuff in two, two points. This question, what kind of persecution should we expect? This, this question wouldn't exist in almost any time in church history because for the vast majority of the church, persecution was not like a maybe in the future thing. It's a here and now thing. And then number two, you guys, honestly, I'm just, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. I'm, I'm not that interested in what kind of persecution because I can't know. I'm way more interested in what kind of community can stand any kind of persecution with the power and patience of God. Are you faithful? Are you repenting? That's the kind of community that lasts forever. Not just, not just surviving, but empowered. So um, we can't call our city to repent until we do. So we're going to come to the table with this question. I know this was a lot. This sermon was like fire hose of fire hoses. Um, but hopefully the message became clear. What is tainting my wholehearted, joyful allegiance to Jesus today? Can you answer this? Can you bring something to the Spirit out of that question? Because if you're honest about that question, then you can be sure you're clothed in the power of the Spirit. Somewhere along the line, we have to admit, <laughs> Christianity is a scandal. The gospel, it messes with our agendas. It's beautiful news, but it also like calls into question anything that's not Jesus in our life. And so, can we um, just close our eyes and invite the Spirit of God to breathe on that question for us? What's tainting my wholehearted, joyful allegiance to Jesus? And what would it look like to follow him into his beauty and let him lovingly heal that? Holy Spirit, would you come?